Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, natural, story, from the space Come, well lit. I, I really appreciate the opportunities to speak about the situation that I received over the last couple of hours, essentially, mm. because I am seeing that, unfortunately, uh, Pelosi's visit and this uh, escalation in saber-rattling, because I still believe that we are only in the realm of saber-rattling, is, is being used by <laughs> a lot of uh, political commentators and pundits around the world for cloud-chasing. You know, with uh, eyes of the world turned on Taiwan, it is such an important moment to remind people that this is a real place with real people mm -hmm. and not just a pawn in great power competition, as many like to sensationalize. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, let's just, that was perfect. Let's just get mm -hmm. started with that. Um, so, hello, everyone. We are here with another episode of Firelight Chats. We are here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. Um, today is August 4th, Thursday. It is one day after Nancy Pelosi left the island. Um, she was here for two days on a whirlwind trip that obviously garnered a lot of media attention, uh, not only within Taiwan, but internationally. Um, and we are here with a very special guest, Marcin Jerzuski. Am I pronouncing that correctly? If that's the American-friendly <laughs> pronunciation, and I embrace it. So awesome. What about the uh, correct Polish pronunciation? It's Jerzewski. Jerzewski. Okay. Mm -hmm. Marcin, uh, I'll stick with Marcin. Marcin is the head of the Taiwan office of the European Value Center for Security Policy. It is the first European think tank with legal and permanent presence in Taiwan. I believe you guys opened the office in January of 2022, and you are heading up that office. That's right, and we are very happy to be here. The opening of our office coincided with an unprecedented opening in relations between Taiwan and Europe, and specifically Central and Eastern Europe. So as a think tank with our headquarters based in Prague, Czechia, we are very happy that uh, Taiwan embraced our presence on the think tank scene here. Mm, yeah, so for those who might not know, can you give us a little overview or summary of why this is important at this time, especially vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Essentially, since the onset of COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen an, a growing magnitude of interactions between Taiwan and uh, European countries specifically in the eastern part of the continent. So when European countries were still struggling with uh, addressing the then new challenge of the COVID-19 pandemic, Taiwan was able to hold it together. And then mm -hmm. as a responsible stakeholder in international affairs, it also sought to help out those who, for example, struggled to secure much needed uh, personal protective equipment. So Taiwan embarked on this hashtag Taiwan can help campaign. And that was very well received in Europe. And uh, what followed after was a wave of further institutionalization of relations between European countries and Taiwan, a wave of goodwill coming from European countries towards, uh, towards Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, uh, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, we have seen growing discontent over unfulfilled promises of uh, grandiose investments and lucrative trade deals that mm -hmm. were brought about by China's Belt and Road Initiative and the special cooperation scheme between China and that part of Europe, which is now referred to as the 16 plus one initiative. Mm. So what do you think Taiwanese should know about what's going on there um, in terms of any parallels with the Taiwan situation? Mm -hmm. Of course, this is, this is an uh, important question because ever since Russian aggression in Ukraine escalated on February 24th, a lot of people uh, have been asking whether Taiwan is going to be the next Ukraine. And I think that we really have to be careful about not jumping into premature conclusions and uh, making making inaccurate parallels, which are simply convenient for our for our narrative. Mm. However, uh, we cannot uh, remain ignorant of growing confluence of strategic interests between Beijing and Moscow. Uh, the People's Liberation Army was definitely closely watching developments in Ukraine and 
updating their own blueprints uh, for a potential annexation of Taiwan accordingly. And that's why I also believe we are seeing a lot of trepidation in the perception of potential threats uh, following Pelosi's visit, because the memory of what was largely perceived as a rather sudden attack, even though in reality we have seen buildup for months before, is still a very fresh memory. Right. Yeah, I, I believe Nancy Pelosi was scheduled to come here first in April, right? Mm -hmm. But she came down with COVID. Um, so this is actually a kind of a delayed uh, visit. Yeah, so the timing of this visit is definitely important. And mm -hmm. uh, that is an issue that we are debating quite, uh, quite hotly right now in uh, academia and also in think tank communities. A lot of people dismiss symbols. But uh, considering Taiwan's precarious international status, there is hardly anything more important than symbols. And symbols are also powerful in China, even though the PRC mm -hmm. enjoys more conventional diplomatic recognition around the world. Mm. So scheduling this visit a mere day after PLA day <laughs> is definitely a subtle way to show uh, the middle finger to authorities in, in Beijing. And right. Definitely, we, we should think about the timing of this visit as uh, somewhat controversial. Mm. And uh, there have been a lot of voices saying that such a sensitive visit should not be timed around congressional recess. It should not be timed around the larger delegation to the Indo-Pacific. However, I do believe that it is important that this visit took place as a part of a broader tournée, a broader junket mm. in the Indo-Pacific, because it is sending two very concrete messages. The first one being that despite the situation in NATO's eastern flank, despite Russian aggression in Ukraine, the US is not abandoning its commitments to the region. It's not abandoning its commitments to the Indo-Pacific. And that has been a concern not only because of the dire situation in Eastern Europe, but also because of the, once again, fresh memory of Trump's more isolationist approach to America's engagement with the world. Mm -hmm. And then the second message that this visit sends as a part of a broader outreach of Washington to the Indo-Pacific is that Taiwan is an important part of free and open Indo-Pacific. It's a recognition of Taiwan's important status in this new geopolitical concept. So while I, I, I see the merit to those criticisms, mm -hmm. I also think that the timing is not 100% uh, reckless and selfish. Mm, right. I mean, there's a lot to consider in China domestically and, and the US because the timing is quite precarious in the States as well. They have a lot of internal mm. political issues to deal with and a lot of infighting or controversy regarding this visit from the Democratic side. China with a precarious political and economic situation and the 20th National Party Congress coming up at the end of this year. Absolutely. These developments are very important, but Taiwan is uh, the one stakeholder that is most likely to bear the largest repercussions mm -hmm. for, for this visit. And I think that we should also not lose sight of the fact that we are now gearing up for the 9-1 elections coming mm -hmm. up in November. And Chinese interference in uh, the Taiwanese democratic process is not exactly a new, a new, new. endeavor, exactly. <laughs> so something that is of particular interest to me is the way China has been deploying not only traditional tools of statecraft, so for example, military intimidation, but rather economic statecraft mm -hmm. to achieve its aims in cross-strait relations. And in the early 2000s, we have mainly seen instances of positive economic statecraft, where China was targeting green-leaning constituencies by unilaterally waiving tariffs and providing market access to sway the electorate away from uh, voting for, uh, for the DPP. Right. But in, uh, more recently, we have seen that economic statecraft is still an important tool for Beijing. However, the authorities in China are resorting more to tools of negative economic statecraft. So mm. here I'm talking about the infamous uh, Freedom Pineapples, for example. <laughs> and yesterday, on top of this uh, extremely long list of uh, food products that uh, were banned from being exported to China, we have also seen a ban on citrus fruit. 
from mm. from Taiwan. Right. And I think that there, that this is a story that isn't getting enough attention. I have been looking into Chinese economic statecraft specifically in terms of agricultural products ever since the Freedom Pineapple campaign uh, began in 2021. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that we are seeing this ban on citrus fruit is actually something that the Council of Agriculture and Food Producers in Taiwan should have been getting ready for for the past 18 months or so. Because mm. when it comes to the determination of what kind of products are being targeted, the calculus appears to be quite simple. The first uh, criterion is that China is targeting products that are uh, poorly diversified in terms of exports. And uh, this mm. is to say products whose exports depend overwhelmingly on the Chinese market. Right. So for example, in case of uh, the aforementioned citrus fruit, with grapefruits and sweet oranges that are grown in Taiwan, almost 94% of all exports are going to China. Mm. So once again, diversification is key because it is the most powerful tool that any economy has to mitigate risk and volatility. Mm -hmm. Then the second criterion is not only diversification and those numbers behind exports, but also where these products are grown. The and they South. are grown primarily in the South, yeah. you're so right, in the regions which are overwhelmingly green. These are traditional strongholds of the Democratic Progressive Party. So this is this is something that we should really bear in mind when we when we talk about what is going on in the Taiwan Strait right now. It is not just about Pelosi's visit, and I am very careful about perpetuating these inherently Amerocentric narratives because, yes, this visit is uh, extremely important, but it's not the only thing that's going on. It's There is a confluence of many factors, and even if we look at the visit as a catalyst for this uh, somewhat exacerbated response, this bigger than usual uh, show of muscle mm. by Beijing, mm -hmm. it's not the only thing that's going on. Right. We don't want to lose sight of the larger geopolitical calculus. Absolutely. Right. Speaking of that, could you give a little bit of a background to where we've come now? So, you know, a lot of people are mentioning the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis, right, that we, we may have entered now. Would you put that name on that or are you against that? I am against that and I think yes. it's definitely premature. Mm. Um, I don't know when our listeners are going to tune in to, to this episode. Perhaps the situation is going to become more serious and therefore merit the designation of the, uh, as the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. But mm. I think that as of now, as we are sitting here at 12 p.m. on Thursday, August 4th, mm -hmm. what is most important for us is to remain cool-headed. And the reason why I feel about it so strongly is that one of the most potent tools that China has been deploying vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan is psychological warfare, mm. it's PSYOPs. Mm. And by subscribing to these exaggerated alarmist narratives, we are only further kindling the fire of Chinese psychological operations. This is their precise objective, to cause panic in the society, to destabilize Taiwanese society, to deepen divisions, to deepen polarization. And that's why I am simply getting quite angry when I see that these alarmist narratives are perpetuated in Western media, mm. then they are perpetuated in Taiwanese media because <laughs> oftentimes mm -hmm. those outlets don't have enough faith in themselves and believe that Western media must know better mm -hmm. and must know more than we do here in Taiwan. So, so it's a vicious cycle and that doesn't mean that we can allow ourselves to be naive. Uh, preparedness is very important and I think it's a very positive development that since February 24th, a lot of people in the Taiwanese civil society started to think more seriously about what it means to be prepared, both as a member of a society and as an individual. And mm. we have seen rather tremendous growth in interest in, for example, first aid training or, mm. you know, even airsoft gun training. <laughs> right. Because people want to get prepared in, in different ways and they want to play a part in, in, in defending this sovereign democracy. But preparedness doesn't mean panic. Actually, in many ways, panic is an antithesis of preparedness. Right. Do you think that the country itself is fully prepared? And what about the Taiwanese citizens? Do you think that they are adequately prepared? Or do you think that this uh, might be a kind of reminder, somewhat of a, a minor wake-up call? You know, this is a million or 10 million NT question for mm -hmm. sure. And <laughs> right. it's, a, it's a subject of heated debate. I think that there is a lot of space for improvement in, in terms of military preparedness and also civic uh, preparedness. And a lot of it is related to um, 
socio-historical factors. Uh, we should not lose sight of the fact that Taiwan endured one of the longest periods of martial law in world history. The martial law in Taiwan was fully lifted only in 1992. Mm. And, uh, white terror. Exactly. And th this has repercussions for modern-day relations between the society and the military. Mm. And uh, even after democratization, accusations of bullying in the military and the infamous case of bullying that led to death of one of the soldiers in 2013 mm. um, are that just one example that really illustrates how, how fragile those relations are and that Taiwanese society doesn't really trust the military. So mm -hmm. it's definitely an important job for the armed forces to take a deep look inward and understand how they can make themselves more trustworthy to the society. Mm. There are important conversations happening at policy level. So for example, the Ministry of National Defense has been tasked with compiling an impact assessment by the end of the year of potential impact of extending the period of mandatory military service. Right now it's only four, four months. months. Yeah, uh, We are uh, talking about a potential extension to one year. Also, the outbreak of Russian aggression in Ukraine coincided with a reform to the Taiwanese reservist system. Mm. So changes are happening um, at different stages. It's, of course, a gradual process, as it must be in a democracy. Mm -hmm. Again, th that is not to say that Taiwan should completely rest on its laurels. Mm. Uh, there, is, there is room for improvement. There is room for growth at all levels within the military, in the policy circles, at individual level. Mm. But uh, once again, Taiwan doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is mm. not Foucauldian heterotopia, no matter how much we want to describe it as such. <laughs> and any action to unilaterally change the status quo in the Taiwan Strait would not be, as Beijing wants us to believe, merely an internal affair of China. Of that would have repercussions for the region, that would have repercussions even beyond the Indo-Pacific region. I and mean, huge global seismic shifts, especially with TSMC in the picture. Absolutely. And the US is watching what's going on. Japan is watching what's going on. And there is a lot of policy coordination going on between Tokyo and Washington on how to safeguard Taiwan. Mm. Um, even countries like the Philippines are affected by what is going on right now with the live fire exercises. So it is not only a conversation about the ability of Taiwan itself. This is a much bigger question. Mm -hmm. Regarding the military service, the debate about increasing the mandatory service from four months to one year, what do you think are the biggest obstacles for getting that passed? So it's one thing to extend the duration of mandatory military service, but another one is to convey the message to the public that this time will be well spent. Mm. Because that is one mm -hmm. of the biggest controversies that we are seeing in debates about mandatory military service in Taiwan. You know, that is uh, just an anecdote, and anecdotes make good dinner conversations rather mm -hmm. than good social science, but <laughs> uh, one of my acquaintances who is a dual citizen holding a Taiwanese as well as an American passport, uh, recently completed um, his four-month period of mandatory military service uh, when he came to Taiwan sort of as a COVID refugee from, from Texas. He was subject to even more scrutiny because of his uh, citizenship status. So for the last mm. out of uh, the four months of his mandatory military service, he was essentially watching war-themed movies all day. So Private wow. Ryan on repeat, you know, and... Um, right, that so we don't is, need a year of that. We don't need a year of that. And, <laughs> and, and, and right. I think that I'm allowing myself to share this anecdote, even though I'm, I'm uh, usually uh, careful not to extrapolate on individual cases, because I think it is illustrative of, of a general sentiment that this four-month period is essentially a waste of time. Right. So, you know, earlier in our conversation, we kind of touched upon the growing cooperation between Taiwan and Europe. Mm. And I definitely hope that uh, that could be one area for greater cooperation between Taiwan mm. and the outside world, including European countries, so that Taiwan can learn what kind of models worked in other democracies mm. that are also facing uh, an existential challenge from an authoritarian regional hegemon. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, going back to your point about psychological warfare being an important component of this issue, uh, what are some forms of psychological warfare are we seeing now in Taiwan? Mm -hmm. Psychological warfare can take on different forms, but I think that in the digital age, we should pay attention to disinformation. And, you know, we're, we're doing this show in English, so the kind of disinformation uh, from either China or uh, 
domestic pro-China non-state actors that our uh, audience might be exposed to are perhaps somewhat different than mm. people who operate primarily in Mandarin language circles. But unfortunately, line is uh, a very fertile ground for disinformation campaigns. Mm. And um, give credit where credit is due. Line as a private company has been quite receptive to government requests for collaboration on combating disinformation, but we still don't have effective blueprints on how to do that. Line mm. is uh, so conducive to disinformation campaigns mm. because it makes sharing information uncritically very quick and convenient between various line groups. So mm. you can reach a large group of people very, very quickly. So mm. definitely we should look out for different forms of uh, disinformation campaigns on social media. Mm. But even... Uh, Social media platforms that are used primarily in English are often um, used for uh, psychological warfare operations. So what we are seeing not only in Taiwan, but internationally, are uh, influence operations on LinkedIn, mm. where, uh, where the uh, Chinese operatives are trying to extract sensitive information by pretending to be someone that they really aren't on, on LinkedIn. And that is so serious of a challenge that actually... It was described uh, very explicitly in the National Security Review of the Republic of Lithuania, for example. Mm. So, so, so governments are watching the, these developments very closely. And then, uh, specifically with, uh, in, within the context of Pelosi's visit, yesterday we saw some hacker attacks. So, mm. um, Cyber espionage. It's not only cyber espionage. Okay. So what I was thinking about uh, here were the hackings into... Uh, 7-Eleven convenience store networks right. where calls for warmonger Pelosi to go back to America were the displayed. Witch. So <laughs> the witch, that was that was in Xinzhuoying at the uh, at the train station right, there. Right, right. And, um, you know, something that I think is uh, a little bit ridiculous is how uh, crude these campaigns uh, <laughs> essentially are. So, for example, the witch poster right. that, that you referenced that was that showed up on the uh, big screen right it showed up on a big screen but it showed up on a big screen in simplified characters so <laughs> right. um, that I is quite telling <laughs> and um, even beyond the choice of script the mm. the particular words that were used in that in that message are not exactly used in uh, Taiwanese Mandarin so mm. uh, the exact phrase to describe the visit was Tuan uh, Fang but that is not a phrase that is uh, standard in Taiwanese Mandarin. Right, right. Um, it was a, quite a crude attack, but it also, from the Taiwanese side, it still got through, right? So I think Taiwan needs to do a lot in order to bolster those defenses as well. Absolutely. And I think that what is key is education. And I know that this almost becomes a, a sort of cliche where we talk about education, education, education. Mm. People want to hear more about, you know, tanks and, and, and missiles, but I do believe that these softer tools, mm. uh, for the lack of a better term, are really the best and strongest foundation of uh, democratic resilience, because this is the challenge that we're facing right now. It's whether Taiwan has a sufficient level of democratic resilience. And I would put this question on any agenda before we start talking about military preparedness or Taiwan's military arsenal. Mm. And how would you answer that question in terms of preparedness from your vantage point? Uh, so uh, you mean military preparedness or democratic resilience now? Democratic resilience. Mm -hmm. I think that Taiwan in many ways is a poster child of what democratic resilience should, what form it should take mm. in, in, in modern day and age. And that is not to say that there haven't been any challenges to democratic resilience in Taiwan. Mm. We see those challenges daily. But unlike many other democracies of the third wave, so um, the, third, the three waves of democratization is a term coined by an American political scientist, Samuel Huntington, which describes uh, three sort of clusters of, of democratization. And the third most recent and the largest wave of democratization commenced in 1974 with the Carnation Revolution in Portugal. And it took place mainly in Eastern Europe following the collapse of the Soviet Union and the uh, Warsaw Pact. Then also in East Asia, starting with the fall of uh, Marcos in the Philippines and democratization in Taiwan and South Korea, and also in Latin America. Whose uh, grandson is back now. 
Uh, oh, you 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 mean uh, with with the Marcos? Yeah, 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 yeah the Marcos. Right, right, okay. right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, um, yeah. So exactly, uh, I I think that you're really laying a foundation for a good comparison. The mm. the reason why I'm talking about uh, the third wave of democratization to begin with is because if we take a look at individual cases within the third wave, we can really see where democratic consolidation was successful and where we saw instances of democratic backsliding. Mm. And and I think that. The Philippines, unfortunately, was not very successful with democratic consolidation. And the recent election is, of course, a continuation of that. But previously, the Duterte presidency mm. was definitely mm-hmm. a win of populism, which, once again, I think is antithetical to democratic resilience and democratic governance. Mm. But yeah, Taiwan had a brief moment of uh, flirtation with populism on national stage when Hang Yu was representing the KMT in presidential in election south. in 2020, down in the south. In Kaohsiung. Exactly. But that was, that was extremely short-lived, as we all saw. So mm-hmm. I think that Taiwanese democracy is very strong, but uh, challenges remain. When we talk about these challenges, I'm thinking about the situation of the LGBTQI plus community, for example. So even though Taiwan is the first country in Asia to have legalized same-sex marriage, mm-hmm. challenges to full equality remain, for example, with lack of um, access to adoption rights. Mm. So currently among all the countries in the world that have legalized same-sex marriage, only Taiwan and Ecuador do not provide same-sex couples, uh, married couples with access to adoption. There's issues with transnational marriages as well, right? As well, yeah. So when we talk about the key challenges to to full uh, LGBTQA plus equality, I think it's fair to focus on three challenges. So adoption rights, as uh, as I described, transnational same-sex marriage, so we can go uh, into depth about that in a second, Mm. and then also rights of trans individuals, because Mm. Taiwan still has rather rigid regulations pertaining uh, change of legal gender markers, Mm. and also uh, Taiwan is yet to implement a gender-neutral legal marker, so X Mm. instead of male or female. Mm. I see. Okay. So, um, yeah, could you go into that a little bit about the transnational marriages? What is the problem here in Taiwan? Taiwan is the only country that legalized same-sex marriage, which requires that both spouses come from jurisdictions where same-sex marriage was also legalized. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a lot of uh, words, but to make (laughs) it simpler, uh, for example, if a Taiwanese citizen wants to marry their fellow Taiwanese citizen, it's very straightforward. Mm. Under the special law, the Act for Implementation of a Judicial Union Interpretation Number 748, they can get legally married. If a Taiwanese citizen wants to marry their U.S. American partner, Mm. that's also feasible Mm. because the United States since 2015 recognizes the right to same-sex marriage at federal level. Right, after DOMA was Mm -hmm. taken out, right? Exactly. But then... For example, if a Taiwanese citizen wants to marry their Filipino partner, that doesn't work because the Philippines doesn't recognize same-sex marriage. Mm. And I would imagine that one of the first questions that comes to mind is, why is it the case? Mm. And that's actually an issue in coordination of different pieces of legislation. Mm. So marriage between spouses of opposite sex in Taiwan is governed by the civil code. And uh, there have been attempts to also codify same-sex marriage under the civil code. However, following the aforementioned judicial union interpretation number 748, there was a lot of pressure from illiberal groups, a lot of them connected to uh, American ecumenical churches, Mm. to block legalization of same-sex marriage. So at the end of the day, same-sex marriage in Taiwan was legalized using a judicial path rather than a legislative path. Mm. And the legislative union decided to allow for provisions for same-sex marriage using a special law. So that's what I mentioned. The, Mm. This this super lengthy uh, law, Act for Implementation of Judicial Union Interpretation Number 748. Mm. However, there is another law in Taiwan, which is the Act Governing the Choice of Jurisdictions in Civil Affairs uh, Related to Foreign Elements. Once again, a lot of words. (laughs) But what that piece of legislation that I just mentioned talks about is whose law should we apply when at least one of the people affected by the decision is not Taiwanese. Mm. And also not Chinese or from Hong Kong or from Macau, because that's 
That's another, another complicated, yes. right? But let's leave uh, the uh, labyrinthine cross trade relations for maybe another episode. Exactly. <laughs> so essentially, what this law stipulates is that marriage between a Taiwanese citizen or a marriage concluded on Taiwanese soil mm -hmm. needs to be legal in the eyes of the jurisdiction that uh, the overseas spouse comes from. Okay. And that provision, which was written, which was codified way before same-sex marriage was legalized in Taiwan. Mm. So this applies to uh, heterosexual marriages. Yes, exactly. Okay, I see. But that legal provision in and of itself is nothing wrong. It's not discriminatory. Mm -hmm. So what it prevents, for example, is kind of double dipping with marriage, so to say. So mm. uh, it, <laughs> it, what it does is that, for example, if you are already married in the United States, you wouldn't be able to marry someone else in Taiwan because mm. that wouldn't be legal under the law of your jurisdiction. Right. However, what was not considered when the Act for Implementation of Judicial Union Interpretation number 748 was being discussed is how it would affect Taiwanese citizens who want to marry overseas partners. Right. So that is essentially a problem of legal coordination. And uh, up until today, we have seen four cases of courts issuing decisions that allow such marriages to occur. So there was a case with a, a Malaysian citizen, a case with a Macanese citizen, most recently a case with a Japanese citizen. Hmm. However, unlike in the United States or in the UK, Taiwan doesn't use common law. Taiwan uses civil law. Right. So these precedents have very limited applicability to other couples. And mm. essentially, one of the features of the US legal system is that precedents are legally binding. So the judicial branch, in a way, has also legislating powers. Right. But that's not the case in civil law systems, which Taiwan is an example of. Mm -hmm. So that's why the conversation is uh, already happening. There are some very active legislators who are trying to change the situation. Mm. And there are also actors in the civil society who are bringing a lot of attention to this. Mm. But um, essentially, that's the case. I want to emphasize that this provision is not targeting same-sex couples. Right. It is an obstacle to equality. But once again, that's a matter of coordination of different pieces of legislation rather than targeting right. same-sex couples. It seems like a relic, actually, of older legislation. Absolutely. Right. And okay. um, one of the postulates of TAPCPR, a lot of acronyms, <laughs> uh, uh, Taiwan, uh, as, uh, Taiwan Alliance to Promote Civil Partnership Rights, which is an LGBTQI plus advocacy group in Taiwan mm. uh, that actually focuses on using legal and judicial tools to mm. fight for um, the rights of the LGBTQI plus community. One of their postulates is to change the wording of the particular article in the act governing the choice of mm -hmm. law in, in, mm -hmm. in matters involving uh, foreign agents to get rid of the requirement that marriage should be governed by the jurisdiction from which a person originates to the jurisdiction in which the people reside. Mm -hmm. So then it would mean that if the couple lives in Taiwan, if mm -hmm. the couple wants to get married in Taiwan, it wouldn't matter if the original jurisdiction of the overseas spouse allows same-sex marriage or not. Right. Okay. So how close are we to that? Um, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a great question, but unfortunately, uh, I think that it may still take some time. This is also due to the fact that uh, the legislative calendar in Taiwan was disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. So a lot of time in plenary debates was dedicated to, for example, debates on special laws uh, related to the pandemic, laws governing uh, stimuli that were distributed to combat the negative externalities of the public health crisis. Mm. So this is an issue that is somewhat lower on the legislative agenda. Got pushed on the back burner a bit. It, it did. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of that issue, and since we're talking about transnational marriages, do you see any other rays of hope in Asia regarding same-sex marriage? I, I, I think so. Mm. And I think that it is fair that in many ways, legalization of same-sex marriage in Taiwan was a bottom-up process. It started with grassroots organizing, grassroots activism. And Taiwanese organizers are very uh, skilled in reaching out to their regional counterparts. There is a lot of uh, cooperation between Taiwanese and Japanese and Thai groups. So progress in 
other Asian countries might be slower, mm. but I think that uh, Taiwan is definitely, in a way, this Leading shining city up on a hill with that. And mm. uh, it definitely provides useful lessons to civil societies around the region. Mm, okay. So can you go to the uh, third leg of this, which was the trans or gender marker mm -hmm. uh, situation? Can you explain a little bit about that issue and, and what is going on with that? Absolutely. So as of now, due to an executive decision, an executive order of the Ministry of Interior, Taiwan imposes very strict um, regulations on trans people regarding uh, the process of changing a legal gender marker. Mm. So essentially, the requirements that uh, trans individuals need to uh, comply with include two psychological or psychiatric evaluations and also full surgical removal of um, genitals oh, and reproductive organs. And that is, uh, that is very invasive and that is infringing on rights, on the bo bodily autonomy rights of trans individuals. And um, there have been two court cases. So once again, the judicial pathway is very important for the LGBTQI plus community in Taiwan, mm. where the individuals were able to successfully change their legal gender markers without undergoing surgery. Mm -hmm. But that is an outstanding fight. And I think that as we talk about trans issues, it is also important to mention the rights of the non-binary community in Taiwan, mm -hmm. because unlike other countries like Canada or Argentina, Taiwan has yet to, or the state of California for our American listeners, mm -hmm. Taiwan has yet to provide for a gender neutral legal gender marker. So for example, an X, a third option. And that is, that is also an important push uh, from the non-binary community. And actually this, this is a debate that is happening between uh, the trans community and the non-binary community and then more broadly within the LGBTQA plus community because some activists in uh, the trans community are pushing primarily for the removal of the requirement to undergo surgical removal of reproductive organs. Mm. But that only would reduce the burden of uh, changing the legal gender marker for people who are trans, but still can find a place for themselves on the gender binary. Mm. But it doesn't uh, fully represent the broader spectrum of uh, gender identities. Mm. So I'm guessing this particular component is probably going to be a, a little bit more challenging than it, the previous one. <laughs> it, it, it's definitely work in progress. I mean, all around the world, pretty mm -hmm. much. Right. Absolutely. But it's definitely encouraging to see that um, there are blueprints for Taiwan to emulate and to localize. As mm. I mentioned, for example, Argentina or, or, or Canada or even India with the with the uh, hijra culture right and i think it right. is very important to talk about places like argentina or in the or india in the context of, of rights of the lgbtqa plus community in taiwan because this is very easy to dismiss it as simply a western perversion right mm. and say that there are no lgbtqa plus people here and that has been done, but a root of homophobia in Asia can often be traced to Western colonialism. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, transnational solidarity, for example, between indigenous peoples in, in uh, different parts of the world is uh, really conducive to an intersectional expansion of rights of minority groups. Mm. So, of course, I'm familiar with the Hijra community in India, but and you mentioned uh, Argentina as well. Maybe could you explain a little bit about that in India and then what is going on in Argentina? So this is not my area of expertise. Mm. So I did uh, quite a lot of research on uh, the LGBTQIA plus community in Taiwan. I, I am also a rights holder in the LGBTQIA plus community, but I looked at those issues mainly through the lens of democratic resilience, which also got us talking about mm. those issues. So mm -hmm. I think that I would leave a more detailed conversation about uh, the Hijra community and uh, the trans community in Argentina to experts in that field. Mm. But I, I just want to, um, I brought it up mainly in the context of this transnational solidarity, which is important mm -hmm. for social movements and which is important later on for a policy process. Right, for sure. Okay, sounds good. Um, so you also mentioned uh, political backsliding before and we, we alluded to what's going on uh, in the Philippines. We kind of joked about that. Uh, South Korea also elected a very conservative, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily consider it backsliding, but a very conservative uh, president. What do you think about the overall Asia region in terms of political backsliding or perhaps the opposite progress? Mm -hmm. 
I unfortunately I, I do think that democracies are suffering around the world and um, Asia is no exception. Mm. Uh, we are seeing um, strongman politicians around the region who are infringing on rights of minorities. So we saw it with um, crackdowns on farmers protests and the Muslim community in India under Modi. Mm. Um, uh, Joko Widodo in Indonesia is also not exactly a poster child for successful um, democratization. Indonesia continues to suffer from extremely high levels of uh, clientelism and corruption. And uh, we can see it very clearly, for example, in how um, uh, Jokowi is prone to credit claiming in distributions of um, social policy, um, mm. a very important topic during the COVID-19 pandemic, isn't it? When mm -hmm. a lot of people lost their income due to quarantine and home isolation requirements and also lack of um, a flow of international tourism. And then I think that it remains to be seen what the effects of the UN presidency are on South Korean democracy. But uh, perhaps I would go a step further than you and say that his presidency has potential to perpetuate democratic backsliding in South Korea due to his uh, apparent misogyny in, in mm, policymaking. Right. And it is a threat to democratic resilience when a minority group, when a vulnerable group, is uh, systematically uh, targeted, even Half if only rhetorically. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's a huge issue right now in Korea. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so as we mentioned today, you know, it's August 4th. This is the day after Nancy Pelosi left and China said that they would start conducting live military um, exercises starting at noon, which is about an hour ago. So uh, supposedly they are happening right now. Can you explain a little bit about what this means? We are yet to see what actual shape of these exercises will be. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that one of the most potent tools in China's uh, toolkit is uh, psychological warfare. So mm. the sheer fact that these uh, large-scale exercises were announced is uh, already uh, sending a powerful message to Taiwan. It already has a potential to have a detrimental effect on Taiwan's democracy and democratic resilience mm. and internal societal dynamics. Mm -hmm. Something that is quite unprecedented is that the scope of marine exercises that was announced impedes on uh, Taiwan's territorial waters. So, for example, to the southwest of Taiwan, the area designated for um, for those drills is in very close proximity to Xiaoliuqiu Island, um, which belongs to Pingdong County. It's an inhabited island. There are also potential environmental consequences, given that um, Xiaoliuqiu was designated as a habitat of endangered uh, green turtles. Mm. Uh, also, this, uh, these exercises are happening in uh, relatively close proximity to some of uh, uh, very strategic infrastructures. So mm -hmm. uh, once again, the southwestern uh, exercises are relatively close to the third nuclear power plant in Pingdong. They are close to the landing station of um, underwater sea cable, which are actually quite fragile and could be damaged, not even intentionally, but mm. just by a missile that was, if it was misdirected. Collateral damage. Yes, collateral damage. So, of course, there is risk of uh, a mistake that could lead the situation to, to escalate. I don't want to be myopic about this. The mm. risk is always there. However, I would like to once again emphasize that it is so important to stick to the facts and stay mm -hmm. cool-headed and see what actually happens. I have great faith in the ability of this uh, administration in Taiwan to do effective telegraphing of what is going on to the public. And uh, yeah, it, it, it is a little bit of a wait-and-see situation. China is not shying away from... Uh, from intimidation, and it should not go unnoticed. The international community is watching this unprecedented, so far rhetorical, right. escalation of intimidation versus Taiwan. For example, the joint statement of G7 leaders and the high representative of the European Union for the common foreign and uh, security policy is a very powerful gesture. Mm. But again, when it comes to uh, the actual physical, tangible impact, Let's stay cool-headed and see what happens. Yeah, it's difficult, right? Because the third missile crisis was in 1995, 1996, yeah. right? And they also conducted missile drill exercises. But I believe those ones were 
farther out into the ocean. And uh, this time they have uh, six zones that they, you know, kind of uh, announced they would be doing exercises in. And it seems that, as you had mentioned, down in the southwest, some of that zone protrudes into Taiwan's territorial waters uh, 10 miles off the coast. So although we don't want to be alarmist, do you think that this is a significant escalation from the past? You know, at, at this moment, we are still only dealing with the announcement by the PLA. And uh, we don't really know what it will mean practically that such a large area was designated for exercises. Mm -hmm. Will the exercises really take place around the edges of, mm -hmm. these, of these quadrants that were designated? Uh, what kind of uh, exercises are going to be conducted there? Right. So, yes, it is rhetorically, it is an important escalation. But we have to wait and see what are going to be their practical ramifications. And uh, to be honest, I, the glass is always half full, right? And mm. with that, those exercises are a very important source of intelligence gathering for Taiwan's allies, for Japan and most importantly for the United States. In Taiwan, as well as in the two aforementioned countries, uh, wargaming scenarios are conducted on a, a very regular basis. And the current situation can also be viewed as a very reliable source of material for creating more realistic scenarios to make us better prepared. Right. Some might say that that might lead to a kind of a spiraling effect, right? Because as you mentioned, that's a very important form of intelligence gathering for Taiwan and Taiwan's allies. Um, but likewise, for the adversary, I mean, China, that uh, many people are saying that the reason they are doing this is also kind of to test capabilities and of course, to collect a lot of data. Um, for sure. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the broader context, and I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that you brought it up. Mm. For example, you spoke of the upcoming 20th uh, National Party Congress. Mm. And I would agree with a lot of uh, Taiwanese analysts that the 20th National Party Congress is actually a stabilizing factor. Mm. So uh, Xi Jinping hoping to get an unprecedented third term as the Secretary General of the Standing Committee is currently grappling with multiple challenges domestically, economic and social challenges, which are further exacerbated by the ongoing pandemic and a very strict zero COVID policy. That's why she is resorting to the infamous wolf warrior narrative in, its foreign po mm. in China's foreign policy. And when I'm speaking about foreign policy that also includes cross-strait relations and Beijing's uh, approach towards Taipei. Mm. So to me, it's a show of force. And mm -hmm. uh, I will say what I've been saying for months because I don't think that it has changed. When we look at any action undertaken by China, one of the first questions that we should ask ourselves is who is the audience of what is going on? And to me, considering that regime survival is the primary concern of Xi Jinping, it's domestic audiences. Mm. Why has there been such a powerful, almost gaudy show of force mm. and military uh, capability in places like Xiamen, where we saw those images of tanks, tanks just on rolling on the Fujian. beaches, yeah. right in between beachgoers, people with families? Right. If you want to impose a blockade, you don't send a press release about where you're going to <laughs> impose it. If you want to stage an attack, you don't show off all your military equipment wanting to be seen, wanting to be shown on Weibo mm. um, the day before you do it. I identify myself very much as a constructivist in my understanding of international relations and constructivism pays a lot of attention to symbols. Mm. So this show of force is symbolic for the Chinese domestic audience. Mm. It, is, it is a symbol of strong, heavy-fisted rule that Xi Jinping is promising should he be granted his still unconfirmed third term. Mm, right. <clears throat> so I, yeah, I totally agree with you. I believe that there is uh, quite a strong inertia from that 20th uh, National Congress in terms of getting closer to kind of that stability. But what about the prospect of after? after that. Quite a few analysts think that although that might be the case up until he kind of secures that third term. But after that, the argument is that the reins will be loose and he'll be able to chase whatever truculent agenda he might want to chase. You know, that is, that is of course a risk. And um, I think that it is worth uh, reminding our listeners that the PRC has been threatening the very existence of Taiwan and people living on this and the surrounding islands, essentially since it was proclaimed in 1941. Mm -hmm. So 
that risk has always been there. It is a lingering crisis. Mm. But uh, I would not necessarily say that should she be granted a third term, the reins would be loose and that he would necessarily proceed with action. Because I still think that she deserves to be treated as a rational actor. Of course, he is a gruesome dictator. He is turning China into an increasingly totalitarian country. It would be foolish and unjust to discount the atrocities that he's uh, perpetuating in East Turkestan, Tibet, Southern Mongolia, Hong Kong, Macau, you name it. Mm -hmm. This is all true, but I still think that he is guided by a calculus and a risk of invasion on Taiwan is very high. Mm -hmm. He risks wasting a lot of resources and perhaps undermining his own position. So... Would it really be conducive to for, for his aims? We don't know that. Taiwan is a place that I like to refer to as an archipelago democracy, and I don't mm. love when media use the word island as a synecdoche for, um, for Taiwan, mm. because it's more than just the island of Taiwan. And I think that we should not lose sight of vulnerabilities of Mazu Islands and Jinmen and islands in the South China Sea. Because... Right. Uh, that is also one possible scenario that we should consider. There, we might see an annexation of one of these islands or at least an invasion on one of these islands simply because they are closer to the coast or with uh, South China Sea Islands, they're actually uninhabited. Right. Um, and that's kind of, uh, that's also a possible scenario that I don't think is getting uh, sufficient attention, at least popular messaging. And exactly. on the one hand, a takeover of a place like that, an island, could really fuel domestic propaganda and consolidate his rule and also send a message to uh, what he would describe as separatist forces uh, domestically. But then at the same time, it would not be a full-scale invasion on the main island. Of course. That's what I think. Yesterday, I was actually out at the park late at night walking my dog, uh, Mocha, and I noticed some flashes in the night sky. I actually thought it was lightning, but uh, I heard some news stories that there were drones flying over Jinmen. And the Taiwanese military uh, launched some flares, uh, warning flares. As you allude to, I don't think, uh, I think, some people might be losing sight of the fact that the first Taiwan crisis, the second Taiwan crisis, and third Taiwan crisis, all of them centered around these islands, right? I mean, something that is also uh, worth saying is that some people dismiss the argument that I uh, just presented about a potential invasion on one of the outlying islands because there is um, a very large military presence in those places, and those islands are generally quite well fortified. So technically, they could be very difficult to storm. Mm. So... I just want to I just want to put it out there because this is also one school of thought to which uh, uh, we are exposed. But I personally think that we should be paying a lot of attention to the outlying islands and the islands in the South China Sea. Yeah, right. I mean, they are very close to the uh, Chinese coast, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think people who are not familiar with the region might be surprised if they saw that on the map, right? And, mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I, I, I think that it's quite exciting that in recent months we have been seeing increasing coverage from Jinmen and also from the Mazu Islands because those places really used to be terra incognita to a lot of um, Westerners, even though they are quite literally on the front lines of democracy. Mm, exactly. Um, so according to you, how does this play out in uh, the best way possible? Well, this is, this is another uh, million-dollar question. Right. Huh? Um, I think that uh, it, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to make predictions. And I think, once again, that it's really important to deal with facts. But there is already one extremely important lesson that Taiwan and other democracies should draw from the current situation, and that is that diversification is key. Mm. Because economic statecraft has already played a very prominent role in response to Pelosi's visit. And we talked about me doing work on Central and Eastern Europe as well. And um, even though economic coercion from China is not exactly anything new, we are still see uh, seeing a lot of naive voices calling for exports of Polish apples or exports of dairy products to China because everyone keeps dreaming the China dream and thinking about its growing middle class and its expanding market. Mm. But this is a very naive approach. And um, especially German governments over the years have been uh, convincing us about the veracity of the myth of uh, Wandel durch Handel, change for trade, mm. really separating, compartmentalizing economic interaction with Beijing and political interaction with Beijing. Mm. And now is the time 
when we should really wake up and see that that model does not work. Mm, right. We need new solutions for these new issues and the very quickly changing geopolitical landscape as well. And one of the simplest solutions is to not put all of your eggs in one basket. Right, right. So how does Taiwan do that? Taiwan is, has been doing that in a couple of ways, uh, more or less successfully. So um, it is no secret that economic dependencies between both sides of the Taiwan Strait remain quite strong. But mm. it is uh, worth bearing in mind that we are now in the sixth year of Taiwan's new southbound policy, which is a flagship foreign policy instrument put in place by President Tsai Ing-wen when she assumed presidency in 2016. And it is a policy uh, based on economic and people-to-people -people ties aimed at strengthening Taiwan's relations with 18 partner countries in South Asia, ASEAN member states, and Australia and New Zealand. So it is also uh, worth emphasizing that the new Southbound policy is not operated from within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The preparatory office for NSP was put in the presidential office, which emphasizes its importance for Taiwan's international outlook. And at the very core of the new Southbound policy is diversification. Mm. The policy focuses on uh, supply chain resilience. It focuses on increasing uh, the magnitude of economic interaction between Taiwan and those partner countries in terms of trade, in terms of investment, in terms of tourism flow. So, of course, realization of some of the more people-centric priorities of the new Southbound policy was hindered by the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it remains a very important and relatively successful tool mm. for Taiwan. And recently, the enhanced interaction with Europe is, in my opinion, also facilitating this aim of diversification of Taiwan's international relations, including international economic relations, beyond the infamous Taipei-Beijing-Washington Triangle. Right. Okay. Um, nice. So could I ask you a bit of a personal question? Please which go ahead. Is, uh, as we started in the beginning when I was having difficulty pronouncing your name, mm -hmm. you are a Polish uh, citizen. Yes, so I am. What is your journey like to Taiwan? How did you end up in Taiwan and also interested in kind of Asian affairs as well? So it's a journey that has included many stops. Mm. Uh, I left Poland uh, at the age of 16 when I moved to Norway. I uh, went to an international school, which is a part of a broader educational movement called the United World Colleges. Mm -hmm. So I went to one of the now 18 UWCs in Norway, mm. and it was a fascinating place, often a difficult place, but definitely whimsical and very inspiring. Uh, Where in Norway, in Oslo? No, so uh, the Norwegian UWC is on the west coast, approximately three hours north of Bergen. Oh, I've been to Bergen. Bergen nice. is amazing. Yeah, Don't I love, love Bergen. I love the medieval old town in the port. Exactly, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, so 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 it was it was a beautiful place, and at that time, uh, I was doing the international baccalaureate program, and I was asked to choose a foreign language which I wanted to study, and my choice was uh, essentially between Spanish, Norwegian, and Mandarin. And I thought that it was an international environment, but at the end of the day, I was still a European in a European country speaking English, which is a European language with everyone. So just on the basis of principle, I, I went with, with Mandarin. So it started with the language. And actually at the time, my teacher uh, came from a Confucius Institute. So now when we are talking about even geopolitical ramifications wow. of um, Confucius Institute uh, presence around the world, I reflect on my experience. And the Confucius Institute back then was a very different institution. and. Mm. Uh, I will be the first person to tell you that uh, Taiwan should uh, beef up its soft power arsenal by doing more to promote Mandarin and also Taiwanese language education internationally. Mm. But the environment in my classroom at the time was, was quite free. And uh, then with this foundation, I, I moved to the United States. I went to college uh, at the University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia, where I double majored in political science and Chinese studies. And because of this combination, Quite early on in college, I started working with a professor who at the time was the um, associate dean of our School of Arts and Sciences, who happens to be uh, a Taiwanese political scientist. Dr. Vincent Wang and I worked also on some research projects. So actually, the first year of our uh, cooperation coincided with the watershed 2016 election when Tsai Ing-wen uh, won the presidency. So it was very exciting to be tracking those developments. and. He encouraged me to come to Taiwan to study abroad. 
So oh, wow. I came here, I spent my junior year at the National Zhengzhou University, and uh, I liked it so much that I decided to come back for grad school. So I finished my master's at NCCU as well in mm. international studies, and I've been here ever since. So mm. right now, as you mentioned, I am heading the Taiwan Office of the European Values Center for Security Policy, which is the first European think tank with a permanent legal presence in Taiwan. Mm. But before that, I also worked at the Polish office in Taipei, so our de facto embassy to Taiwan, uh, the mayor's office of Taipei City Government, and Taiwan Next Gen Foundation, which is an awesome uh, local think tank working to make Taiwan more sustainable, diverse, and inclusive. Mm, amazing. So do you plan to be here for quite a while? Yes, I don't have plans to leave. And no, the Chinese rhetoric is not scaring me away. <laughs> Exactly. We are chilling here on a Thursday afternoon, drinking boba, enjoying our enjoying our day and trying to make the most out of this crazy world of ours, right? Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Exactly. All right. So I know that you have another uh, appointment. You are a busy man full of uh, media appointments today. I'm doing the important work of dispelling alarmist narratives. Exactly. <laughs> so soon it is on to a next one. But I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I hope that you can come by again and we can discuss any of these other issues more in depth as well. Absolutely. I would love that. And thank you so much for having me. It was great to touch upon so many different issues, which I hope uh, also shows the listeners how multifaceted Taiwanese democracy is. Exactly. And and this is just beginning. The story is just beginning, right? Absolutely. Let's, keep, let's keep unveiling it together. Exactly. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Marcin. And Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We hope everyone is doing well and will be well. Stay safe, stay calm. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.